Today's reading is Psalm 71, 1 through 6. It can be found on page 537 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge, to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel. For you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our God of grace, we come into here this morning, and in a way there's no telling how many different experiences and places and moods and temperaments and, and, um, and questions we bring this morning. And as we come from different places, we come bringing our doubts, we come bringing our tears, our grief, we come bringing our frustrations, we come bringing our anger. We come bringing our joy. We come bringing our thankfulness. Maybe this has been a week where we have seen your hand in a way we maybe didn't expect or haven't seen in a long time. We come um, sometimes bringing our anger, sometimes bringing our impatience, We bring our hopes and we bring our dreams. Our lives don't always go the way we want them to go. And so we have to recalibrate and and rethink, what what is this all about? And as we come, we also come more of a mess than we want others to know. We come more broken than we care to admit, as Emily was saying earlier. It's the motto of city life, really, the tagline. But it's also true, and it's transformative only if we realize that while we're broken, because of Jesus' entering into the brokenness on our behalf, while we're broken, we're also loved. We're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. So we invite that love to enter in today. In the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. What is dependable? I love that picture up there. What is dependable? Rocks, teetering, um, balancing. A couple of years ago, my family went on a trip. It was part of a sabbatical break from ministry for a whole summer, and we ended up at Arches National Park, where there's this, I, I don't remember what it's called. I think it might I think it might actually be called balancing rock. It's kind of like exactly what it looks like. Um, but it's this, um, apparently there's more than one throughout the world, but there's this really incredible, mind-boggling, um, multi-ton rock that's balancing on, on like what looks like a golf tee of a couple other rocks. And the people, the experts say, it, it will fall, you know, eventually. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. But you, so you go and you watch and you kind of come close to it kind of tentatively, right? Because it just looks like, how is that thing balanced?
balancing there? What's dependable? What's dependable? Today we think about um, God the rock, and so we're really asking ourselves a question, what am I depending on? What's your rock? What has been, functionally speaking, the rock in your life or some of the rocks that you've been trying to stand on or put your hopes on lately? What have they been? And what's that like? Because um, God is saying in this psalm that he's something dependable in a world where um, things aren't as dependable as they look. This is true. The, uh, on our trip this summer, we got to go up to Oregon, and we went to, ended up at the northern edge of Oregon where there's the Columbia River Gorge. It's beautiful. The, the beauty comes from uh, an ancient event uh, that they call different things, but one of the phrases is super flood. The Missoula floods. Has anybody heard of this? Or Missoula, Missoula from, from Montana. That's where Missoula is, right? Yeah. Right? Lily's going there. So, so it took geologists, you know, decades upon decades to argue with each other to figure out how the scab lands in between Missoula, Montana and um, the Portland area where the Columbia River Gorge is to figure out why there are all these features that don't make sense. How did this happen? And what they found out, eventually what they figured out with all of these clues is that up around Montana, there was this river moving along during this ice age and the glacier came and blocked the river. And so um, this huge lake developed there and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then all of a sudden the pressure kind of released and, and so water would flood out to the ocean you know, the Pacific Ocean all the way from Montana. And this would happen many, many times over the period of thousands and thousands of years after it would refreeze and then the water would build up again. But we're talking about um, like half, like the water that would flow out in one, like one instant of like a dam breaking would flow to the ocean and it it was the amount of water approximately to half of what's in Lake Michigan. And I've flown over Lake Michigan before. It feels like you're flying over an ocean when you look out the, the plane and see that lake. So half of that just in, in one fell swoop, just rushing out. So it's created all these geological features that people just thought were impossible. It's, it's done things to the land and to rocks that you thought couldn't happen. It, there are rocks from riverbeds miles and miles and miles away, and there are these huge boulders the size of a car and they're up hundreds of feet higher than they should be sitting up on land the top over here. It, that rock should not be there. We're talking about thousands of feet of water just rushing through. There are, there are places where there's a rock bed, but there are, um, again, about the size of a car, there are these giant holes that were bored out by just the sheer amount of water and the pressure, and the scientists have figured this out, that it has to do with a swirling vortex of bubbles that would drill into the hole when this massive kind of instant flood was happening. So that, you know, these scientists are looking like, why are there these huge hole, round, smooth holes in solid rock? Things that, you know, we, so we learn this in life is that things that we think are dependable and that are so sure and we anchor our lives in them, 
And then life produces a, a flood, an extreme weather event, something that we didn't see coming, something, of course, that we didn't plan for. And so we have to rethink our rock. What is our rock? What is stable? There's a book called simply Wave, and it's a, um, I guess you call it a memoir of a gal named, her name is Sonali uh, Dharani Yagala, and she's a, an academic, and she was vacationing in Sri Lanka when the tsunami happened in, I think, 2004. So this is one of the you know, hardest books I've had to read because it's just, it's just um, incredibly sad, incredibly difficult to hear someone tell the tale of losing family and then really wishing that she would have got taken away with a wave as well. She tells the, she tells the story. It's basically just this, this incredibly deep, sad story of loss that includes you know, the opening pages describing that morning <laughs> you know, when... The waves were a little higher than they should be, and they started getting more and more curious before all of a sudden they started to flee, but then just step by step, fleeing as a family, but then all of a sudden just the crushing wave coming in, and then her realizing she was the only one who made it. It's a tale, really. It's a, it's a book. It's a memoir of lament, of deep grief. It's a difficult book to read. As someone describes losing her parents and her husband, and her two little boys, all in one day. It's a it's a book that it's it's a book that works on two levels, right? It's telling it's a it's a real wave, but it's also this concept that most of us experience uh, spiritually or metaphorically that weather events, spiritually speaking, come in and wash things away. Things aren't as stable and as strong um, as we think, and so. This academic writes this book of lament, a diary of grief telling of the days, days on end of suicide watch where her family members had to sign up for shifts to just be there with her to make sure she didn't take her own life. Psalm 71, actually, it might surprise you. We read the first part of it, and there's these strong phrases, be my rock of refuge to which I can go. Deliver me from the hand of the wicked. Be my rock of refuge, for you are my rock and my fortress. It's actually, so scholars say, this is a psalm of lament. This has, this psalm, let's see if I have a quote for this here. This psalm includes all the markers of, of psalms of lament. This psalm has more characteristic, one scholar says, of an individual lament than any other type of psalm. But it's, it's, it's interesting, it has it has has some joy to it too, but it's a psalm of lament during which in the crisis, in the loss, in the things threatening life, the prayer is teaching us to call out to the most dependable thing that can't get washed away in the middle of it. The waves come and threaten all that seems sturdy, but here's this joyful lament, a prayer for the fragile times. Do you need a prayer for the, the fragile times, the times when things aren't so sure? Verse 3 again, what does it say? Listen to this. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Is that a prayer you can see yourself praying in the midst of your own fragility? Martin Luther, the, the German reformer, who's uh, known for, in a sense, his strength, 
he wrote a song called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's a, it's a, it's a song of, of dependability and stability. It's one of the most famous hymns that there is. But the year when he wrote it was a year in which he suffered severe depression, not only in April, but he suffered depression and illness that overcame him again in August and in September and in late December. He wrote to his good friend, I spent more than a week in death and hell. My entire body was in pain I was, and I still tremble. Completely, this is what he said, completely abandoned by Christ. I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God, but through the prayers of saints, his friends, God began to have mercy on me and pulled my soul from the inferno below. This is 1527, and not only that, but in that, that is also the year that the plague erupted in Wittenberg, and Martin Luther said, no, we're not going to flee the city like everyone else. We're going to stay, and we're going to take care of the sick. And he watched friends die. He watched his own son become ill. And it's in this year that he wrote, a mighty fortress is our God a year where everything was crumbling, a year of fragility in his life. These are the words. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our shelter he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Do you ever feel like the storms of life are prevailing? Did we in our own strength confide? You rely on your own strength. Our striving would be losing We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus. It is he. That's Martin Luther's hymn in his most fragile year. So maybe you've been uh, stewing on an area in your life of fragility. Most of us go through this pretty often, right? We, We feel certain things crumbling or not turning out the way we thought they were, and we realize we're maybe not on completely solid ground or we wonder how temporary things might be. And maybe you're stewing on that as something in your work life or in your family life or in your school life or in your your emotional life or in your romantic life isn't seeming as solid as was once promised or as you had hoped or as you had depended on. Maybe you just realize in yourself a dependency on something that's way stronger than you had even realized you'd let it become. On our trip uh, in the Columbia River Gorge, one of the things you have to see, it's, I think it's the top tourist attraction in the state of Oregon, is Multnomah Falls. Has anybody seen it? Yeah, Lori? Multnomah Falls. It's amazing. When you stand at the bottom, it's a two-stage waterfall. Um, and, there's, and when you look, you see this tiny little bridge going across, kind of in the middle, because because the way it just works, there's a spot where there's a, a bridge that goes across, and the waterfall, if you, you line up, you see this waterfall going above it and down below it. It's gorgeous. It's incredible. And it's, fall, it's water falling down that gorge that was cut by that, those super floods, right? So this all connects. Huh? Advanced preaching here. <laughs> um, and, and when we got up, one of the things you do then is you walk up to the bridge, and it's astonishing when you get up there. That's a, it's a, a good, healthy-sized walking bridge up there. It looks so tiny when you're down at the bottom, and there's people up on it, just crowded up on there. In 1995, there was a wedding party 
doing photos, you know, photos up on that bridge, and a rock, a boulder the size of a car, fell off down to the ground, and, and it went into the pond like there's a pool of water after the first one, and soaked the whole wedding potter, party with water. And I, there were, uh, you know, the, I looked back at some articles, because they, they tell you that story when you go there, and there's, there's I guess, some injuries and, and so forth, but it wasn't very serious. Just kind of stunning, right? Like shocking that this big, huge boulder crumbles off the side and creates a wave of water to soak the wedding party on the bridge. We do well to consider our feelings of frailty and ponder the fragility of what we spend our time on. And what we, in a sense, what are we anchoring our life on? Jesus had this great parable, very simple, very memorable. It's a great, in a sense, a great kind of morality parable to tell children that Jesus said there's a wise and a foolish builder. And the the foolish builder built his house on the sand. And the wise builder built his house on the rock. It's just very simple, you know. And then the storms came, the weather comes, and the one house gets washed away and the other is strong. Buildings in Hong Kong are part of this... Uh, when we were driving up the, the, northern, the coast of California into Oregon, we realized we're along this thing called the Ring of Fire, like the, you know, Mount Shasta and all the way up to St. Helens and Crater Lake, and then all the way around is this kind of earthquake volcanic zone all the way around to Asia. And in Hong Kong, on the other end of the Ring of Fire, they have to build skyscrapers. They, you know, they, they have big buildings, they have skyscrapers, but they have to build them to be able to withstand Typhoon-grade winds, that means up to uh, 250 kilometers per hour wind. I think that translates to about 150 miles per hour wind. And the buildings have to be able to handle that. They're built knowing that the earthquakes are going to come. And the weather, you know, it's like that wise builder. And so they drill. One building I read read about this week, the skyscraper that was for a while the tallest building on that side of the, um, the world, had 100, has 127 anchors uh, driven deep into the granite underground, like 50 to 100 um, feet underground. And there are just these like rods that go down, these engineered things that anchor the building uh, underneath. 127 of them for one building going deep into the ground to anchor that thing in rock. That's wise building, right? And in um, Acts chapter 4... There's a place where we say, well, what is the rock? You know, what is, how does Jesus have to do with this? And in the early sermons of the Christian church, um, one of them by Peter, it says Peter was filled by the Holy Spirit, and he gives this sermon, and he quotes ancient scripture from the Old Testament, where it's, and he, but he's, he, he adds Jesus to it. He says, Jesus is, and then he quotes the scripture, the stone the builders rejected, which has become the corner stone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other way, name given under heaven by which we must be saved, he says. The stone the builders rejected became the cornerstone. So, so the biblical story moves us from God the rock in kind of this general amazing way to God the rock who comes in person as Jesus, the cornerstone and how dependable, how do we know that's dependable? How do we know it's sure? How do we know Jesus is the rock you can depend on? And part of it is the way that he, he himself entered into our fragility. 
that his way of becoming the rock permanently for us is that he went through the valley of fragility. He went through the storm. He let the wave carry him out and he went under the water into death. A strange way to be strong, right? But Jesus went the route of fragility to redeem fragile humanity forever, to offer this redemption for fragile humanity forever so that after the cross, when, by the way, there was an earthquake when he let out his last breath, then on the third day, the rock that shouldn't have been able to be moved moved away so that the rock could come out of the tomb. Fragility didn't win out even though Jesus went in deep into the storm and it seemed like he was crumbling. That's what the Christians look to and say, we have a rock. (laughs) And you know what that means day in and day out? It means welcome fragility. Come with your fragility to this rock. So often... It's, even, it's so often to, in a way, get the Bible wrong, right? And this is just one of those other examples of, it's so easy to say, you know, the, uh, God is my rock, and, and, and then what we think and what we kind of interpret that to mean is that I need to screw myself up and be really strong. I don't know, I don't know why we do it. With every little chance in the Bible, we, we tend to turn it into we're going to kind of somehow save ourselves or be our own rock, this is, one, this is actually, it's, it sounds great. God's my rock. And, and I think we just, took, you know, we lean into, yeah, I'm strong. No, 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 God's your rock. You're fragile. Things are crumbling. You need a rock. <laughs> That's where the Bible goes with that. And so Jesus says, one of those just most soaring words that he said, one of my favorite phrases, one of my favorite verses is, come to me, all you who are weary. You know, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you fragile, all those who are fragile, come to me, and I will be strong for you. I will be dependable for you. So part of the reason scholars say, well, why does Psalm 71, it's a psalm of lament, and yet it's very, it seems very chipper and hopeful and strong. It doesn't seem, it seems different in a way. And so this is what that quote that I started earlier continues Psalm 71 is a kind of confident, even jubilant psalm of lament. The reason for this may be that the speaker in the psalm addresses God from the viewpoint of one who has attained more mature adulthood and is approaching old age. I'm, uh, I have a birthday tomorrow, I turn 39, and I'm starting to think about... Um, you know, you know, 39 or, or 29, you know what that makes you think of? It makes you think of the next year's birthday, right, when you're at that point. And so I, I've been pondering decades, just kind of in that, like, what decades? Hmm, what's the last decade been? And then I've been thinking, like, what? Is there a, is there a sense in which I might even be able to, like, think about some, some motto or mantras for this next decade that I'll enter into a year from now? So I guess I have a trial year. But uh, which is good always, right? To test things out. But I, um, I, I, pull, I, I wrote something down in my journal uh, this week, as in my prayer journal, and I, and this is kind of how I, what I was being led to write down in terms of if I, if I could say like I'm going to hang on to 